Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Binance Podcast. My name is Wee Joe. I'm the Chief Financial Officer for Binance. So, what I want to do with this show is to spend time talking to specialists, entrepreneurs, scholars, influencers, basically leading people from a variety of industries. Hopefully, through these conversations, we can share insights on how blockchain is changing not just these different industries, but also in changing the world. Here's a quick disclaimer: all opinions expressed by our host and our guests on this podcast are merely their own opinions. They do not imply any endorsements or opinions of their companies. You should not take these opinions as specific investment advice, as you will be solely responsible for your own investment. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the latest edition of the Binance Podcast. Today, I actually have a really, really, really awesome guest. Mainly because,、um, like, one of the key themes behind the Binance Podcast is we want to bring in experts and professionals from who have joined the cryptocurrency space from their own fields, where they've basically made a really successful name or successful career for themselves prior to their entering the cryptocurrency space. And in conjunction with that, bring their experience、um, into this space. So today, I'm joined by、uh, Ed Tolson, who's the、uh, founder of、uh, Kbit.、Uh, for those who don't know, Kbit has actually been pretty stealth, but they're a high-frequency trading firm that's focused on the trading of、uh, crypto and crypto derivatives, with basically really high trading volume, with over a billion U.S. dollars a month. So that's quite a bit of volume. Ed to come here, introduce himself. Basically, his background is that. You know he's a comp sci guy from MIT, and then has basically, prior to joining the crypto world, spent about twenty plus years in the quant trading space, focusing primarily in the equity markets. And he founded Kbit in two thousand and seventeen. And then Ed, I'll let you jump in here and give a. I've said my bit in terms of your background, but anything you want to add in terms of your introduction, and then、uh, you know we'll jump in from there. Yeah, that, that's a pretty good job. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here today. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a computer scientist at MIT, and then kind of stumbled into finance just almost 20 years ago, and have been applying computer science to algorithmic trading for yeah almost 20 years now. In, in terms of what we would call high and medium frequency strategies in the equity markets, and just I think for for people who don't know what high frequency trading is, as a HFT fund or investor. What do you do on a daily basis? I think, in particular, in your previous job at the when you're trading equity. Yeah, that's a good question. So we are not manually making trades.、Uh, so you know, just in case it's not clear, all the trading is done by computers. So what we're doing is writing the software, laying the pipes,、uh, collecting market data, and then doing research. So you might have an idea that a certain strategy will be profitable. So then you do some research on the market data you have and see how it looks. Try to incorporate new things like that into your trading models. So the day to day is like a mix of kind of. Making sure the trading system's running correctly and doing research to continuously kind of improve the trading system. And then you've been doing that for twenty years in the in the equity markets. It seems. And what were some of the major trends? Because I know the Michael Lewis book with regards to sort of the rise of the HFT trading and in terms of a lot of the proprietary systems that we've seen, you know, coming out of Citadel and, and Renaissance and those guys. Now they make up those type of firms. Now make up the bulk of trading that takes place in the traditional equity markets. I think you seem to be like the guy that part of that trend. Like, what was the evolution of that in the equity markets you saw? Yeah, I was. I kind of stumbled in right at the beginning of that. I think I first started poking around in 1999 while I was still in school. You know, back then in U.S. stock markets, a typical bid offer spread was、um, 
25 cents or 12 and a half cents, something like that on a $25 stock. So, you know, it could be a, a percent, a 1% bid offer spread. And uh, a lot of trading was done manual. There were like farms of uh, manual day trading companies, you know, where people went in every day and like click buttons to do trading. You know, I think computers kind of took that over. So computers took over the function of capturing the bid offer spread and narrowing the bid offer spread and identifying and capturing like very short term trends in the market signals that are in the order book or signals that are in short-term price movements or signals from other markets that are coming in. So whereas people used to do that in 1999 and, and still be able to do it profitably, there's no way you can do that today. Today, the US equity market in terms of high frequency is, as you mentioned, hyper-saturated, hyper-invested. So much capital has been invested and human capital has been invested that um, there, you know, it's a very efficient market. Spreads are tiny, spreads are a penny. And, and yeah, that, that's been the trend is this kind of uh, a lot of investment and, um, you know, most of the inefficiencies have been wrung out. We could talk about the different types of strategies there. You know, the Michael Lewis book is obviously a really interesting showcase of a, you know, of a predatory strategy. Yeah, but I think that's just one type, right? Because there's multiple. Yeah, absolutely. I know there's, you know, there's global macro strategy you can take in terms of industry sectors, because a lot of it is more about just capturing the inefficiencies in the marketplace. Yeah. So we tend to divide these strategies up and, and the terminology is usually like high frequency, medium frequency, low frequency. And high frequency is your, your, whole, your, your forecast for a given position is like seconds, minutes at most hours. And then medium frequency would be more like minutes, hours to days. And then a lower frequency would be like your holding positions for weeks or months. And all of those are, are different types of what we would call systematic or quantitative strategies, which means that they should be automated. They're trading done by computers where humans have done research and then decided, okay, there are certain patterns or ways to capture inefficiencies in the market. And so all those markets are pretty saturated in, in the U.S. equities markets for sure. And that, from that perspective, are your, are your sort of trading software plugged in? How plugged in are you to sort of the, the exchange themselves? In the crypto space, I mean, yeah, we're... we're in the equity space. Yeah. So, you know, co-location is the thing in the equity space, right? Because um, nanoseconds, microseconds, the market is so saturated that to have, to be competitive on a short-term time frame, you have to be competing in the microsecond and nanosecond range. And if something happens on a market in Chicago, you know, there's a race for that information to make its way to New York and be reflected in the different market in New York. So if something happens in a futures market or an options market in Chicago, there's a race basically competing down the speed of light to get that information to New York. So it's, it's hyper co-location. So much capital has been invested in that. Mm -hmm. And does that exist for global equities, do you feel like? Or is it primarily just U.S.? Um, I think it exists, but to a much lesser degree. For sure, the European markets and the Asian markets co-location is a thing. I think less capital has been invested. The, um, the trading volume is lower, market caps, total market cap. You know, U.S. total market cap is a pretty big percentage of world market cap. So, you know, most of the investment has been done in the U.S. Okay. Um, for you personally, when did you start Dabble, I think, into crypto? Well, so I've been a crypto enthusiast for since as long as I heard about it. <laughs> I, I share the <laughs> okay. So you're an early Bitcoiner. Okay, I got you. <laughs> yeah, I share the uh, what I consider to be the the founding kind of principle or the Satoshi white paper principle that government money is unjust and we need alternatives. And so for that reason, I've been following it from you know as soon as I heard about it. But I only started trading it in 2017, so I kind of stumbled in 
I was on a non-compute from my, my last job and um, was just looking for a project to keep interested. So I was like, hey, I'll try some high frequency strategies in crypto. Really didn't expect much to come of it, but um, it, there was the timing was perfect, obviously, with, with what happened in 2017. And, and so it and developed into a real business. Back then, 2017, I think what exchanges existed back then? Like what exchanges did you trade on back then? Um, it's, I, I struggle to remember because the exchanges <laughs> before Binance, kind of the spot market exchanges kind of popped and then came back down. Uh, so I think it was, uh, oh, you know what it was? Is uh, Chinese exchanges were dominant back then. So when I first started, I was trading on mainland Chinese exchanges. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was OKCoin at the time. There was one called CHBTC. Mm -hmm. How applicable then were some of your strategies from the equity world over when you like applicable to the crypto market back then and maybe even evolution of that to today? Yeah, I started from scratch. So I didn't take like models that I mm. had and, you know, kind of refit them to the crypto market. Um, but I've built models like this so many times that I can build them very quickly and kind of start from scratch. So I started from a crypto kind of centric place, you know, and I started very simply. I started with strategies to like capture the bid offer spread, which is like the most basic kind of market making strategy. And then, um, you know, kind of expanded from there. So the concepts are the same, you know, the concepts of like or where uh, profits come from in the crypto markets are the same. And it's basically like there are four kind of sources of short term alpha or short term profit, which is like the bid offer spread discrepancies between different venues, which in this case would be different exchanges, having some kind of a short term for price forecast or where you think the price is going. And then the fourth one would be some kind of front running, which obviously we don't do, but we can you know talk about what that is as mm -hmm. well. So th I think those are the same sources in crypto as in the equity market for short-term profit. But yeah, I, I mean, I started building the models from scratch. And, and there's uh, enough nuances to the crypto markets that it, it makes sense to start from scratch. You have to start recording market data from scratch. Then that comes down to sort of the second big part of the question is, in addition to strategy, what are some of the um, technology requirements then in terms of starting your own crypto sort of high-frequency trading business? Yeah, that's right. We're like market data consumers. Uh, we, we, we live on market data. So you have to start recording market data as soon as you can. Like the rule number one in quant trading is you record everything and you never delete anything. You know, kind of the first thing we do if there's a new exchange that has interest or whatever, we start recording all the data and we save it forever. So we get like huge bills in terms of like database and storage uh, every month. And then um, in crypto in particular is this uniquely kind of global market and 24-7 market so we're running virtual servers in the cloud, you know, around the world 24-7. So we're, we're primarily in AWS, though we, we do use some other providers. And so we're running AWS servers in, you know, like all these different regions in Asia and in Europe and in the U.S. and in Canada. Those are the key kind of requirements. That touches on a really different aspect, I think, of the cryptocurrency trading business, uh, even for exchanges like, like Binance. It does operate 24-7. There's no breaks. I would say that's very something. I would say that is that probably one of the biggest differences then in the equity and that at least you get some time off. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's um, it's a key difference. I don't think it's the biggest mm -hmm. one, but um, it's a huge difference. I mean, the number of hours that the U.S. stock market is open is like six and a half times five, mm -hmm. you know, whatever that is, 32 and a half versus like 100 and however many hours in a week. So there's a there's a huge, um, the markets are open a much longer period, you know, every week and it's 24 seven. So you don't get a break to, you know, do system upgrades and things like that. And I know, you know, that's a challenge for Binance and every other exchange uh, out there as well. And it's, it's equally a challenge for us. We have to do upgrades on the fly. We have to find safe ways to do upgrades um, during trading hours. So you don't turn your software off at all then? <laughs> Yeah, correct. We're always in the market. I don't think we've ever not been in the market since I started. Um, so if we have tech issues, you know, we might be down on one exchange or something like that, but we're more or less always in the market. 
And it also means like from a support coverage standpoint, you've got this nightmare where you need not, not only 24-5 support, but like 24-7, you know, weekend nights, you know, we trade every holiday overnight. It's kind of a nightmare and it can be very taxing on your personal and social life. Tell me about that. <laughs> <laughs> then it goes down outside of the personal challenges. I know a lot of the infrastructure, I think, in crypto is still being built, right? Like, because a lot of the infrastructure, a lot of it, like, at least for me in the early days, if your API works 24-7, then you're like, oh, great, right? Not even to mention if you do have customer support 24-7. But, but just in terms of, like, infrastructure-wise, have you seen any improvements in there? I mean, obviously, we've seen improvements, but... What challenges does it remain for this business um, to really start to take off? Yeah, there are tons. I would say, generally speaking, a lot of the exchanges were founded by people that didn't have much background in finance. And, and Binance is obviously an exception to that. And so there were a lot of challenges around the tech infrastructure, the integrating with exchanges, you know, API nightmares. You know, Binance is a rare exception that kind of got their API right on the first version where like, for instance, they push order updates to us instead of us having to pull for order updates, things like mm -hmm. that. No, a lot of other exchanges have come a long way in the meanwhile, but the, the key kind of structural thing that remains, and I don't know how to solve this, but the key problem that remains is that the exchange is everything. You know, in the equities world, the exchange functions would be at least three different companies, if not more, which is like the matching engine, the settlement layer, and let's say the front end, like those would all be different people and different providers. And you can choose, you can mix and match um, in the equities world. That puts extra burden on the exchange. And it also puts like extra burden on us. Like we have all these um, additional complexities created by that. That speaks two things then, I think, right? First is, uh, for example, right now, you know, in the equity market, maybe just plugged into, you know, NASDAQ, NYC, and then maybe like Chicago Mercantile. But here, you're probably plugged into like the top 30, 40, 50 exchanges across the board. Like, how do you manage that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, we, yeah, we're plugged into, uh, we've integrated with 40 spot exchanges, probably 10 derivative exchanges. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, they're all doing API upgrades whenever they're doing them. And we have to stay on top of that. They have outages at different times or scheduled maintenance at different times, and we have to stay on top of that. So it, it definitely creates uh, operational overhead. Speaking of sort of the different roles for Binance, for example, right? Like custody is something that people talk about. Oh, centralized exchanges take custody. But I would prefer not to <laughs> because it's not like I'm getting paid right. to take yeah. custody, right? Whereas all the risk is on the exchanges, right. but we're not being compensated for price. Like that's not priced in. Right. So that's why I think for Binance, at least we've been trying to or at least we've been, you know, pushing for the DEX, which is a custody list. Right. You let customers, you know, take their own custody. Would that be something that would be of interest or that would be like a firm like you? That would be some one of the things that you would try. It's really interesting to hear you say that, because from our standpoint, we're always viewing, oh, man, the exchange has custody of our funds and it's a it's a huge hassle for us. And we're so dependent on them. Right. Like if they freeze withdrawals, you know, we're screwed. We were, you know, we're yeah. short capital for mm -hmm. a week or whatever it is. And but no, I, I now I see it from your side, which is like, yeah, when you take a loss, you, you're compensating the customers. You're taking that out of pocket and you're not getting compensated for that. You're not charged. You're not collecting a settlement, you know, one percent a year or anything like that or a, a custody one percent a year or anything like that or settlement fee for that matter. And so we would love any solution to that problem. You know, we don't get in some ways we're not getting compensated for the counterparty exposure that we're taking there. And, and uh, kind of more importantly, it increases the need, the, the amount of capital that we need. So like in the old market, let's just say there was an arbitrage between 
the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange, right? So you, you buy IBM on NASDAQ and you sell it short on the New York Stock Exchange. You don't have to do anything else. And that's an extremely capital efficient trade. You don't need, that's almost, you almost need zero capital for that trade if you close the position intraday on it, even on a different exchange. If we were to do the equivalent of that between Binance and a Binance competitor, we would have to have Bitcoin sitting on Binance, Bitcoin sitting on the competitor, and then do the trade. And then so we, we have to keep capital locked up on both exchanges at the same time. Uh, so it makes us very capital inefficient compared to you know, an analogous business in the equities market. That's really interesting because, because basically you don't have, there's no capital efficiency like for you to trade it. Maybe that's a product offering down the road, right? Yeah. So mar margin capabilities help, but really what you would need is some kind of like clearing provider, like a third party clearing provider that sits behind some of the exchanges or partner with, partner with some of the exchanges and is kind of clearing things behind. So I can, I can buy Bitcoin on Binance and sell it somewhere else and just get that cleared as a single you know, trade that doesn't require much capital. It's just a ledger then. It was basically you have to keep a ledger and then there's someone that actually, the fund holder, the custody holder, actually runs the larger ledger that you have to true up that ledger on a daily basis. Yeah, you become the exchange. You become the matching engine, the exchange, and not the, not the settlement in custody. That's interesting. I'll jump into sort of a different topic then. If you look at it from 17 today, you've gone through sort of, I would say, one major bull market and a little mini bull market the last few months. And then, you know, probably like two, one major bearish cycle. Has that changed your sort of like overall strategy or does your, does your overall strategy change during that time? No, and we try to run hedged. So, yeah, so our baseline position, we try to be kind of flat market exposure. You know, so in the equity market, you would enter the day, you know, flat everything. And then you might short IBM on NASDAQ and buy it on the NYSE and you're flat again. And so we're trying to have that approach, although obviously it's a challenge in, in the crypto markets, both because of the problem we just talked about and because there's nowhere for me to borrow Dogecoin, you know, and so that I can short it intraday. So do you take any positional bets then at all? So we're trying not to. So we have a, a sort of baseline position and we're, we're, we have a hedging strategy to kind of make our, our, our baseline market exposure as flat as possible. And so if we can't, if we can't borrow Dogecoin, less incentivized to trade it and we have to trade it at a disadvantage. So we have to trade it at like, we need a higher return on capital to trade it, you know, so we, we need um, a higher profitability to trade it. But we might still try to trade it and short something else um, in place of it. I think come on to sort of like, you know, last portion of our, of our chat. What do you see sort of in terms of on the horizon or, or rather, and, and lastly, sort of like, what do you look for? What are some of the key offerings that you're looking forward to at Binance? Yeah. So um, we talked a lot about the settlement and custody. So if you guys can solve that one, that would be amazing. I think that would make the markets much more efficient. So I won't rehash that one. Um, I think coin lending and margin expanding margin capabilities are huge. They make your market more efficient. They make your spreads tighter. For high frequency firms like us, they're huge for all those reasons we just talked about so that we can short sell Doge and not have to take a lot of risk in doing that. And it reduces our capital needs, the amount of capital we have to tie up. So we look forward to you guys continuing to grow out your margin uh, capabilities. And we would really uh, welcome some kind of coin borrowing, coin lending solution as well. Okay. Cool. What do you see in terms of competition then, like in your business? Because I know for our business, competition is, is super, super tight right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a little harder to tell because uh, firms like mine aren't really public unless they, you know, so there, there are a lot of firms um, doing this type of business for sure. And um, that, that I've become aware of. So I know it's a competitive market and I think it's probably uh, increasing, you know, I think as, as uh, 
crypto has showed um, that it's resilient, that it survived the bear market. You know, I think there are even more firms entering. So I know there are a ton of firms. I think the way we, a little bit different is um, we trade really deep alts. So uh, we trade almost 400 cryptos today. Um, and so we're able to, you know, make markets on anything on Binance or, you know, really, really uh, kind of deep alt coverage like that. Wow, that's pretty amazing. You guys are really market movers in this. Yeah, for me, you know, I don't get that involved in this aspect of the business. My focus is a little bit more strategy, you know, growing up, developing our fiat business. So at the same time, you know, helping us to meet a lot of the regulations and as sort of the regulations tighten up in different marketplaces. So, so for me, it's actually very refreshing to hear that a lot of the traditional equity style sort of is applicable. I do feel that the volume in this business is only going to grow as sort of like more people come in and as I would say, even the players get more sophisticated. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Yeah, it's a growing asset class. And uh, as market cap grows and as volume grows, that's going to attract more of the traditional HFT firms uh, into the market. Yeah. And one of the things that we've been trying to do is basically introducing more, I would say, high quality tokens as well, our, our launchpad programs. And uh, because I think only then does the, do you really grow the asset class. Um, you know, some of them might make it in the long run, some of them might not, but at least I think it does provide a different path of uh, fundraising on the blockchain and people are continuing to do it. So we still got to continue to feed the beast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys for listening in. Really, really say a big shout out. Thanks to Ed to share, um, you know, his knowledge and his experience here with us. Uh, for me, at least it's been extremely enlightening. And then we look forward to having you guys join us again on the next Binance podcast. Thank you very much, Ed. Thanks, Waves. Nice chatting. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this interview as, as much as I did. If you like this show, please share this episode on Twitter, Facebook, Telegram, WeChat, or any other social media platforms. Please don't forget to subscribe to the Binance podcast and see you next time.